0: First of all, I
1: would very much um, like to thank the Spirit Rock community for inviting me here. And Jack, who I know for many years. And um, I'm very happy to be here with you. I think it's rather cozy tonight, isn't it? <laughs>
2: it's like India.
1: <laughs> I think it's bringing the Burmese Buddhism here. <laughs> a true transmission (laughs) (laughs) and I think we've all dissolved so therefore there's nothing for me to say (laughs) I've forgotten everything Suppose I have to say something. <laughs> what shall I say? <laughs> I think the theme for this evening is meditation and the nature of mind. I think Jack has very skillfully given the very basic teachings which is inspired by the, the Vipassana teachings, or the, it's very interesting in the Dzogchen teachings, the tradition that I belong to, we often do not call the basic teachings of the Buddha as Hinayana, mm. we call it the Fundamental Yana, They're not fundamentalist.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they could become fundamentalist. But with more humor. <laughs> There's less danger of that. Uh, but that in many ways you see Buddha in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, essential all the levels of the teaching of the Buddha. For example, my, my masters, when they taught me, they actually began to put all the different levels of the teachings of the basic. Teachings of the Buddha, as well as the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, within the context of the Four Noble Truths. So um, that, in many ways, that you see, I have a great appreciation for this. Really, the basic teachings of the Buddha. In fact, after teaching Dzogchen, I think I'll come back and teach the basic teachings. <laughs> so, now let's be serious. <laughs> and let's talk about nature of mind, which can be also fun, <laughs> is that first of all, according to the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen tradition, there's a very famous saying which is used by the masters of these great traditions. The saying in Tibetan is, Chu na tang sem machinade. de. You understand clearly now. <laughs> That means, just as water, if you don't stir it, will become clear. In the same manner, the nature of mind is such that if you do not manipulate, if you do not contrive, but leave it in its natural space, it will find its own bliss. It will find its own well being and peace. That's why you see, if you were to combine the meditation and nature mind together and put it into one word, really, from many years of teaching and a little bit of practice also uh, in the meditation, I've realized that the whole teaching can be actually summarized into one thing, which is being spacious. Let's say that together. Being spacious. Being spacious. As this great Zen master Suzuki Roshi said, the way to control cow or sheep is to give a big grazing field. (laughs) In the same manner, to really give our mind space is what meditation is. That is what generosity, that is the first paramita in the Mahayana teachings the generosity it is the charitability is that clear? it's being spacious being spacious being spacious in fact there was one very great Dzogchen master or Tibetan master called Longchenpa he gave a whole cycle of teaching on how to bring comfort and ease of mind and in that cycle of teaching he kind of said, which was in fact captured by one of my masters in a very simple kind of a poem or a song. That is, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts. (laughs) Or therapeutic thoughts. (laughs) Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Let's say that. Rest in natural great peace.
2: Rest in natural great peace.
1: This exhausted mind. This exhausted mind. Beaten helplessly helplessly. by karma. karma. And neurotic thoughts. thoughts. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves.
2: Like like the relentless fury. In
1: the infinite ocean of samsara.
2: In the infinite ocean of samsara.
1: So you see, what we really need is a break. <laughs> break. A break. A real good break. A real good break. So being spacious. In fact, one of my own own masters, this very great master, Dingo Kenson, which is, some of you may have heard of him. This extraordinary master. He's actually much taller than me. He's <laughs> <laughs> about seven feet, like a huge mountain. I, what I was quite amazing is as he became older, he became more the embodiment of the teachings. Just his being spoke, really. His being was the resonant at spaciousness. Is that clear? (coughs) That's why really the, the higher the realization, the more spacious you become. Spaciousness is also openness. It's also compassion. It's shunyata is spaciousness. In fact, Shunyata, I think, do you know what Shunyata is? No. Uh, well, maybe shall we get to that, or maybe sure. not? Why maybe not. not. Might
2: as well.
1: Maybe in a little while. <laughs> also, yes, Why not? In fact, one of my own masters used to say, "Buddha gave one name to the nature of mind." That name is Shunyata, in Sanskrit, in Tibetan it's called Tongbani. which in English, very bad translation is emptiness, <laughs> especially if you tell someone from the Midwest and tell them, you know, Buddhists don't believe in God, but we believe in emptiness. <laughs> No, actually, that term is very badly misunderstood, the shunyata. In fact, the shunyata is two. Shunyata, otomba Shunyata Shunya represents the emptiness of the aspect of nature-mind. There are moments when we, you see, for example, when we meditate, when we are spacious, gradually, you see, our thoughts and emotions dissolve away in the spaciousness of meditation. And there occurs a spaciousness Openness, you see, a kind of a state where there is no longer any grasping. That state is Shunya. In fact, I said the nature of mind is like the sky. But then there is a difference between the sky and the nature of mind. That is to say, the mind is cognizant. It is not only open, spacious, but it is cognizant. It is self-luminous. That is what is meant by luminosity or clear light. So that the fundamental nature of mind, Shunyata really says that the nature of mind is not only open and spacious, free, open meaning spacious and free, free of concepts, free of grasping, but also its its nature is luminosity or the clear light. Indivisibility of luminosity and openness or emptiness is what Shunyata is. Is that clear? That is what we try to actually bring in a meditation through by spacious, being spacious. That is why, you see, if you go a little bit further from just being spacious to a little bit, if you add a few words more, that you can also further simplify meditation into three things. Bringing the mind home. Releasing the grasping and relaxing in your nature. Bringing the mind home is because, you see, at the moment our mind is scattered all over. I sometimes teach people say that we are all over and nobody is at home. (laughs) In fact, that's what shamatha is. One great Dzogchen master called Kambungakchung he essential shamatha as bringing the mind into one-pointedness, into focus. Like, for example, if you're taking a picture with a camera, if the camera is not in focus, the picture is not clear. So bringing the mind into focus is the shamatha practice of karma abiding, peacefully remaining, or equipoise. Fundamentally the practice of mindfulness It gathers the mind, bringing it home So that all the discordant aspects Of our being dissolve Become friends Do you understand? Mm-hmm. And as the mind settles Then you see what is something quite extraordinary The negativity get diffused So that's why in many ways that Meditation is in many ways The practice of the highest inner disarmament mm-hmm. Therefore it's an ahimsa And from out of that, reveals the good heart. Because once the confusion of mind, the negative mind is removed, there is no longer ego. In fact, I realized recently that ego only exists when you're confused. The confused state of mind is what ego is. When your mind is clear and calm, there is actually no ego. Is that clear? So out of that state of that, you see, that peacefully remaining, it pacifies or <coughs> frees us of the negativity, diffuses the negativity. And then thereby revealing a good heart, or fundamental goodness, or the Buddha nature. And then gives us, in a sense, the clarity of the insight, which is the Vipassana. Because when the mind is calm, then the clear insight dawns. And out of the clear insight comes the Mahavipassana, which is the experience of Shunyata. Is that clear? That's how connection is. That's one, in the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen tradition, it is said the meditation is boiled down into four points. One-pointedness, you can repeat after me.
2: One-pointedness.
1: Simplicity.
2: Simplicity. Simplicity.
1: One-taste.
2: One-taste.
1: And non-meditation.
2: And non-meditation.
1: One-pointedness is shamatha practice of karma abiding. Since many of you are a little bit familiar with the teaching, so that's why I shall not explain too much. One-pointedness is the karma abiding. The simplicity is shamatha. Oh, sorry, vipassana. The clay insight. And then after that, you see, once you've mastered these two, one practices the indivisibility of shamatha and vipassana. is one taste. Then out of that comes the the transcendence of mind when we reach the domain of no meditation, which is what is the Mahamudra and the Dukkshin teachings are. Is that clear?
2: <laughs>
1: so that's why you see it is most important of all to be spacious. To be spacious. Is that clear? To be spacious. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, if I were to give you a really one little helpful advice in working with emotions which is one of the biggest problems is that at least in meditation we can begin working with emotions by not identify with your risings not to identify with your risings you understand not to you don't understand what i'm saying
0: risings
1: risings like for example anger comes do not become the anger Let it just simply rise. Let the rising rise in the rising. Is that clear? In that spaciousness, the compassion is also non-judging and non-grasping. In fact, it is said in the teachings, in order to really make a difference between meditation becoming a cause for your enlightenment, or just being meditation as simply a kind of a relaxation meditation. The one that really makes the difference between these two kinds of meditation is what is known as the three noble principles, or Dharma good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. What is good in the me- beginning is to realize that, you see, we and all beings, on the fundamental nature, have the Buddha nature as our innermost essence. So that as we practice we don't only practice for ourselves, especially we practice for the benefit of all beings. You see, that is the motivation of bodhicitta, or compassion. And dhamma, good in the middle, is of non-grasping. Dhamma, good in the end, is dedication of the merits. Simply. Because I don't want to talk too much, because I think probably that's the best compassion, for not to talk too much today. <laughs> because you're all being kind of, you know, just to put it essentially... Is that clear? So not to identify with your eyes. In fact, what I was very amazed to hear that you know, there are so many parallels, though sometimes the language is very different. In fact, you were mentioning to me that your teacher, mm-hmm. his name? Cha, Chah. Is in the same way, as his particular approach of the teaching is similar in many ways to some of the Tibetan masters. So, being spacious. Being spacious. And then you see, as you be spacious, it is sometimes said that our body should be like the mountain. Majestic, dignified, yet yet completely at ease in fact this master thingo kens he, he he was like a mountain very much and as you sit you would tilt slightly at back I'm almost hang out in meditation <laughs> see just enjoying the meditation in fact very much first of all you need to inspire yourself yeah. if you inspire yourself then your body will be more inspired to sit it will be less complaining of aches and pains is that clear yeah. As the body is more inspired, it's further inspired the mind also. And the inspiration is most important. That's one of the reasons in the Tibetan tradition we very much rely upon the instruction of the master. The masters, as they teach us, instruct us. The instruction is used to inspire the mind into meditation, to open the mind. <coughs> is that clear? So that as your mind is inspired into meditation, in a sense, that in a sense it tames our ordinary mind. Ordinary mind is tamed and inspired in the meditation. So the inspiration is very important. Particularly sometimes, you see, when you have difficulty with practice, sometimes nature is a great inspiration. Because the wonderful thing about the nature is that it is very natural. (laughs) Very natural completely at ease with itself. That's why sometimes you see a a very helpful practice is to gaze into a clear blue sky. Don't look into the sun. That's not very good for the eyes. But just gaze into the clear sky and allow your mind to unite with this outer sky. Or rather, put it this way, let the outer sky inspire the inner spaciousness. Is that clear? As it does so from out of that union, it will inspire what is known as the secret sky or the wisdom sky, which is the realization of the shunyata or the nature mind. So these are known as the practice of three sky. Outer sky is the sky itself which inspires you. Inner sky is when, by, through the inspiration of the outer sky, when the inner spaciousness occurs, is the inner sky. And the secret sky is out of this, is born a deep insight clear? And also I find very helpful sometimes to look at, particularly when you do not have a nature to inspire you, or like when you're sitting in front of your shrine. Something that is very helpful is to look at a very inspiring image of a Buddha. Try to have a very inspiring image of Buddha, very serene image of Buddha. Like for me, I often use the photograph of my masters. Because my principal master, his name is Jaman Kense. Uh, he was in many ways the, perhaps the greatest Tibetan master of the century. He was the master of all the masters, like Tingu Kens Rinpoche. He was, you can say, also the one who found the previous Karmapa. He was the teacher of Kalu Rinpoche. He was the teacher of Sakya He He's the teacher of all the lamas. And in fact, he was to become the teacher of the Dalai Lama, but he passed away before he could give any teachings. So you see, um, since he was from Tibet, uh, the Tibet the photograph was very rare. And so when pep, ev, whenever people took photos, it was a kind of an event. So don't you notice sometimes when you look at the photograph, some of your grandparents, you know, they kind of posed, put on their best clothes and you know, <laughs> posed for the photograph. And what does a master like my master do when he poses? He rests in meditation
2: <laughs>
1: and rests in the nature of mind. And recently I discovered a photograph of all places in Germany of my master in which he was actually sitting in this meditation and it was so inspiring when I first just look at his face it actually inspired me into meditation. That's why I often use that photograph again and again to gaze into his eyes, into his being because I know how when he actually introduces you to the nature of mind in many ways, you see, the masters actually introduce you to nature and mind, not through speaking, but through their being. Clear? Yes. Because later, more and more, after you receive many teachings, you learn how to receive the being of the master, which is in fact beyond the words. And so you see, sometimes if you had a very inspiring image of a Buddha, very serene, even on a on a very kind of simple level, when your mind is rather agitated, if you look at a very beautiful image of Buddha, a very serene image of Buddha, it makes your mind a little bit more peaceful. And you could be an image of a wonderful image of Christ, or Tara, or any, you see. You use that, that can also help you very much, your mind. Is that clear? To inspire that spaciousness. And so... There are times when your mind is inspired either by the teaching or by the, by the kind of, by your own attitude, by your own view. When that happens, then you see you don't necessarily have to use any method. You can just leave your mind quietly. Like I remember when I first heard the teaching of my master in which he used this particular um, saying, just as water, if you don't stir it, it will become clear in the same manner the nature of mind is such if you leave it in an uncontrived and unaltered way it will find its own bliss peace and well-being just by merely hearing that it actually brought me into meditation so that you see sometimes when you hear a teaching like that it can straight away bring your mind into the state of meditation then you don't need a particular method Because what is really meditation is no other than abiding by your pure presence. The mindfulness purifies you so that you become pure. You become your true being. Is that clear? Without the ego. And this is what we've forgotten to be that, our true being, so to speak. And what we do when we meditate is to come to know this true self, so to speak. To abide by the continued flow of the recognition of your pure presence is what really the purpose of meditation. Like some of the great yogis or the meditators or the masters in Tibet, when they meditate, they're not particularly practicing technique, but they're just abiding by the pure presence of their mind, in many ways. Is this clear? That method is only to help you to purify your mind, just as like a coffee filter you to filter the coffee. (laughs) So meditation methods are just a coffee filter. So don't become attached to it very much. Because the tendency sometimes in the West is that people become very attached to the technology of meditation. They become to say, how do we practice? Do you breathe this much or that much or how many times? It doesn't matter so much as long as your attitude is right. Attitude is most important. That spacious attitude. How are you doing? You okay? (laughs) Okay. Not suffering? (laughs) So, being spacious. But then you see there are times when a mind wanders away, you see, it's rather difficult to keep it still. Then a very helpful method is watching the breath, which is a common practice used in all Buddhist traditions. But in that, one important thing that might be helpful for you is do not put all of your hundred percent of your attention on your breath only twenty five percent it can be also (laughs) twenty (laughs) four or twenty three i tell my german students twelve (laughs) percent whereas my italian students eighty (laughs) eight percent but the rest relaxed. See? The rest relaxed. Only 25% of attention on the breath, but the 75% spacious. Hmm? Is that clear? Hmm? Hmm? Spacious. It's a spacious focus, very much. Quietly. And then, you see, not to judge your risings. Whatever they are, thoughts are your Family. Thoughts are the family of your mind. In fact, my master said, nothing is wrong with thinking, it is the thinking it is the thinking of the thought that spoils it. Thought is no problem. If you don't think of them, then it's fine. <laughs> or free of afterthought. I didn't put that very clearly, but do you understand what I'm saying? Free of afterthought. Not to grasp on them. So that's why the In the meditation, that the dharma good in the beginning is the attitude of compassion. Dharma good in the middle, the real, the body of the meditation, should be non-grasping. Is that clear? And at the end is dedication. So that the most important thing is the non-grasping. Non-grasping to what? To the risings. To not identify. Whatever rises, let it rise. Leave the rising in the rising. Though forms are empty, yet out of emptiness they appear. Though sounds are empty, yet out of emptiness you hear sounds. Though thoughts are empty, yet out of emptiness they rise. You leap the rising and the rising. Your body like the mountain, your meditation like the ocean. Then whatever rises, you leap them in their own rising, naturally, spaciously. Then you see, in a sense... If you are more spacious to your thoughts, even thoughts become more spacious with you. Thoughts will say, well, if you don't have any difficulty with me, I don't have any difficulty with you either. Okay? They become your friends. Sometimes I teach people who say that, you see, the meditator should be like a very charming host or a hostess. Welcoming all these difficult thoughts <laughs> and giving them each ten rooms to act themselves out. A lot of stupid. You can say you're, you you can do whatever you want. But the thing is, yet at the same time, maintaining the focus. Spacious but focused. So that's why, whenever I'm, our minds wander away, very simple thing is, bring your mind just back to the breath. Is that clear? By bringing the mind back to the breath, by bringing the mind back to the breath, gradually, the breather, And the breathing all dissolves and you become the breath. Then the mindfulness has purified you and you become now the pure presence. In fact, actually, when you remain in that state of pure presence, then if you pray, if you dedicate your merit, it's very, very powerful. If you think of someone who is really dying, or someone is sick, and dedicate and think and dedicate the power of your meditation for the benefit of them, from that state of non-ego, or from that state of that spaciousness, from the state of the nature mind, it's very, very powerful. Is that clear? In fact, also, I remember once, one master, he's a very great master. He's perhaps one master that's more sought after now. In, in the Himalayas, in Bhutan and in Sikkim. And he's always, you see, invited to guide the dead. And I remember he's a master with very few words. He doesn't teach very much, doesn't say very much. I remember he said once one thing to me, which I really stuck in my mind. He said, that you see, what are, I was asking, what does a master do when he invokes the spirit of the deceased? and you know in the tibetan tradition you invoke the spirit of the deceased and then really you give teachings you give empowerment in a session and you give the instruction to nature mind i was asking him he said well he said ultimately he said it's this he said as the master rests in the nature mind and invites the consciousness of the deceased to look into his mind because at that moment the consciousness of the in the pardo is clairvoyant can read the mind as he or she reads the mind of the master and the master is in the meditation, identify with it and thereby you know recognize the nature of mind. You also notice that when you're really guiding somebody, it's not what you say, but what you are. Ah. But just by being. You understand? You're being by your being, and that in helping the dying people, most important is atmosphere, 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 you understand, atmosphere, atmosphere, create the atmosphere, atmosphere. Particularly when you do not feel so, how do you say, close, particularly the dying person is maybe uh, someone with whom you have a long history. That's your father or mother. (laughs) Difficult to love them. (laughs) Easy to hate them. (laughs) Sometimes I say, you know, traditionally you invite the enemy in front of you when you practice. In the West you don't need your enemy. You just have your father and mother and your husband and wife. (laughs) But what is helpful... I find a very basic practice of compassion, which in Tibetan is called da yin nyamba and da yin jewa. Well, that's in Tibetan, by the way, if you don't understand, it's in Tibetan. <laughs> what it really means, da yin nyamba is, da means self, yen means other, nyamba means equal or same. That is to say, generally speaking, we always think other people as other people. We never think of them as actually human beings. The only human being is me. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? So that when someone is really dying, beat your father or mother, do not think of them as a father or mother, but see them as another you, another you, with the same desire for happiness and the same wish not to suffer. Just very simple, very simple, just to really consider them as another you. Is that clear? Then next is, then put yourself in that place, saying, if I was dying, how I would feel? What would I want most? Sometimes that really opens your kind of, you see, mind to the inner sense, particularly when you don't know know what to do with them. By really practicing this way, the practice of exchange, the inner sense really opens your eyes of compassion. So when (coughs) compassion is awakened, and then if if you really sit with them, you know, and then also, of course you can invoke the Buddhas. Very much, you see, you can invoke in the sky before you, the embodiment of all the Buddhas, in the form of maybe Avalokiteshvara. That's Chenresi or Konyan, isn't it? The Chinese, the Buddha of Compassion, or Tara, or Buddha Amitabha, depending on you see whatever, or Padmasambhava. For me, it's Padmasambhava is my main inspiration. And if you relate to a form and the form is inspiring for you, then you use the form. If the form is not inspiring for you, it doesn't matter. You can think of them or think of them in the form of light. Uh, Even if you don't see light, that's no problem. You can just consider they're there. In fact, one of the qualities of the Buddha is, is that as soon as you invoke them, they're there. In fact, they're there before you invite them, because they know that you're going to invite them. (laughs) Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So that just by invoking the Buddhas in the sky before you, saying, you know, particularly the dying person, he needs so much help, and particularly when you feel the compassion for the person, in fact, compassion should be like the, the inspiration for this invocation. You invoke the Buddhas in the sky before you, and ask them to really purify the dying person for all the negative karma and the destructive emotions, which are the causes of suffering. Remember, as Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, what you reincarnate is your bad habits. That we need to purify, purify, and then you consider the compassionate Buddhas. Kind of, you know, the Buddhas respond with tremendous compassion, and this. Compassion is sent out in the form of tremendous rays of light. comes to the dying person, and the dying person is completely immersed in the light. It is purified of his or her karma and negative emotions. And at the end, this is one thing that my master, Tinko Kyanarampacha says, is very significant, is that actually you consider the body dissolving into light. This is very significant. Why? Because this body is the result of Past karma. So, when you consider that your body dissolve into light is a symbolic or the auspicious condition of, you see, of actually purifying their karma, because since everything is interdependent, so thereby through this auspicious interdependence, by purifying their body and into light, in a sense, thereby purifying their karma, it is said. And at the end, their being becomes the being of light, which Uh, then return to the Buddha and becomes one with the Buddha. And in that moment, you just stay and rest. I know because some of you perhaps have come to hear a little bit about death. Uh, So I just also, kind of so that you hear a few words of the practice of, to help somebody who's dying, the practice of compassion and the practice of, this is called POA, that I just shared with you. Is that clear? So that's that. <laughs> and then one word regarding integration. This is, of course, I sometimes I find I'm a little bit concerned about the Western practitioners because they want to integrate immediately <laughs> without any practice. <laughs> Please repeat after me. There is no substitute for real practice. (laughs) You have to. But then there is a secret or in a sense a method of how to integrate it. This is one thing given by this great master Padmasambhava who as you know established Buddhism in Tibet. Who is regarded as the second Buddha. In fact the uniqueness of the Tibetan tradition owes entirely to the personality of the the division of Padmasambhava and And he's very much the author of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and also this book that I've just written is very much inspired by him and his advice is very helpful, he says a beginner should practice only for a short time probably good news (laughs) It is sin to meditate more than three minutes. <laughs> now, that one should practice just for about five minutes or three minutes or two minutes depending on how much, however much your mind could cope with Because sometimes meditation is a bit of a fight in a boxing match kind of thing. You know, a struggle. When that happens, just trying to practice does not really work. What you need to do is you need to give up. You sit for a few minutes and you give up. Take a break. When you take a break, you let go of the method of mindfulness, but you do not let go of the mindfulness altogether. Sometimes I notice very interestingly, people who are having a problem with meditation, that actually when they take a break, and at that particular moment, if they are aware, the meditation happens then. So I tease my students who have difficulty with meditation. I tell them, take a break during the meditation and meditate during the break. (laughs) So you see, because sometimes when you sit for 20 minutes, most of the time you're dead dreaming anyway. Because nowhere in the scripture says 20 minutes. It's, I think, Western meditation standard time. (laughs) So about three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, you see, and then take a short break. But the break shouldn't be very long either, about a minute. Because if you take too long a break, you get distracted. And you come and sit again. So many short sessions with many short breaks. If you practice that way, of course it doesn't mean that you have to always sit for five minutes. You can sit for ten minutes, you can sit for fifteen minutes, it's after you. But with short breaks, and then gradually what the break does is actually removes the kind of the, the awkwardness of meditation, or the self-consciousness, or rather the barrier between the meditation and every day falls away. So meditation becomes more and more real more genuine. Do you understand? And as it becomes more and more so, then in a sense, one's nature is strengthened, one's practice is strengthened. As one is strengthened that way, then you can face the challenges of everyday life with that kind of composure, with that kind of peace, with that kind of presence. Is that clear? But also if you go to work, you also, of course, lose it also, easily. But then, you see, I sometimes said to people, it's something like this, you see, when you have a thermos, you take a a coffee, for example. This is not coffee, this is hot water, which is Tibetan's favorite drink. (laughs) If you take um, coffee, if you made a coffee in the morning, or if you made tea in the morning, then each time you want, just you can pour a cup. That is to say, if you practice in the morning, then there are moments when you have a little break, you can immediately practice. That is, if you remember. Only trouble with us, we remember, but then we don't remember. That's why I sometimes tell people, you can repeat after me, to remember, to remember, to remember, remember, when you remember. To remember, to remember, when you remember. See, the main problem of difficulty with practice, you know, why we have so much difficulty with the practice is why, even though meditation is so wonderful, but, you know, it's so difficult to sit, is because we do not do it immediately. We hang around waiting to do meditation. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. We wait for, we just visualize meditation. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: uh, <same. laughs> And also I notice sometimes, you see, in the Tibetan tradition, we recommend that you do practice in the morning. I notice from my own kind of life, sometimes when I get up in the morning and my mind is really peaceful and very inspired meditation, then you see a phone rings or you try to make a call or then that call becomes too cold and then people call you back. So then the whole mood goes away. So the thing is not to make too much preparation. Even don't wash your face. Just immediately as you wake up, just sit immediately. Just grab the moment. So that's why whenever you feel a little bit inspired, you have a little bit of moment, particularly if you practice in the morning, and you just sit quietly for a few moments, just quietly and breathe. If you do, that's why we need to do many, many short meditations like that. You see, so as to really, how do you say, diffuse the negativity, the tension, and the ease which really causes all our illnesses. Anyway, so that's why you see meditation is not just a, how do you say, luxury. It's really not a spiritual practice. It's really a necessity for surviving, for having a really a normal life. We need that, particularly now as life becomes more and more complicated. Meditation becomes a necessity. Do you understand? So, very much that. And then finally, my master, he had an Indian disciple. He was actually a a, a Maharaja, and later became an Indian diplomat. He was an Indian representative in in Tibet, Lhasa, uh, after the British left India. And then later he was posted in Sikkim, which is one of the Himalayan kingdoms. And when we escaped from Tibet, many, many Lamas came and stayed in Sikkim, like the Karmapa. And many Lamas, my master also came to Sikkim. And this um, Indian kind of diplomat, his name is Appapanth, he was really very helpful in helping the Dalai Lama and many of the Tibetan lamas to establish India. He was very close to Nehru also. And he was a very great uh, practitioner and very ardent student. And he used to always ask my master again and again the same question. Because sometimes in the East, there's a tradition to ask your master the same question, not change your questions. Ask the question again and again the same question. So that you might really get the answer. (laughs) He used to always ask my master how to meditate. How to meditate. So one day my master was watching a lama dance and during that time there was a kind of Atsara, which is a clown you know it was bringing some kind of comic relief but the trouble is the Atsara was completely new he didn't know how to be funny so that was extremely funny <laughs> 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 it was natural <laughs> so my master was, my master was having a wonderful time and laughing and meantime abhapan kept pestering through a translator saying how to meditate <laughs> And my master looked at Upapant and he didn't say that I'm going to don't bother me anymore, I'm going to tell you now, but don't bother me anymore. He didn't say that, but his voice was such, the tone was such, saying, Okay, I'm going to tell you now and then don't ask me anymore. <laughs> and what he said was, look, he said, when one pa when one, one thought has passed, before another thought has yet risen. Isn't there a gap? He asked Appapan. And Appapan said, yes. Then my master said, just prolong it. That's <laughs> That's my, <laughs>
2: That's,
1: my, That's, my That's why master said, do not dwell in the past, not anticipate the future but remain in the pure awareness of nowness, Because in fact, in meditation, what we do, we slowly let thought slow down, so the gap between the thought becomes more and more apparent. Because in fact, it's a delusion, the thoughts are continuous, it's a delusion. In fact, there are always gaps between thoughts, in which the possibility of the uh, innate nature is available. Because as it is said in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachings, That on the fundamental nature, Buddha and our nature is the same. That's why the teaching is called one ground. You can repeat after one ground, two paths. I'm doing American by the way, two paths, two Two (laughs) (laughs) paths. One ground, two paths. One ground is on the fundamental nature, Buddha and our nature is the same, but on the path, Buddhas took one road, we took another. Basically, we just made the wrong turning. That is, Buddhas recognized their nature, became enlightened. We did not recognize their nature, became confused. So, recognition and non-recognition. That borderline of samsara and nirvana is recognition, non-recognition. That's why the Tibetan word for recognizing the inherent nature of mind is called Rigpa. Rikpa means seeing the inherent nature, the isness, the suchness, the truth of everything. It's called rikpa. Whereas marikpa, the opposite, is unawareness. <coughs> is that clear? <coughs> recognizing and not recognizing. This is actually very, I find to be really, actually, you know, very um, important, particularly those of you who are dharma practitioners, to really realize that on the ultimate nature, we are all buddhas. You know why? It's because if you really know that fundamentally you are good, you are a buddha. Then if you really realize that, then you see, you have no reason to have any problems. Maybe I didn't put it in a very Good way. What I really am trying to say is that we actually forget. We don't forget, We don't remember. And if you really remember, your nature is pure, like the sky. Even though there are clouds, but the sky is always unchanging. Is the cloud level of our ordinary mind always this confusion, negativity? Even though there are clouds, but that the sky itself is unchanging. That's why often also in the teachings the nature of mind the fundamental nature of mind the Rikpa is often compared to a mirror. Because mirror reflects everything, but what is wonderful is that the reflections do not dirty the mirror. So whatever rises on an ordinary level, your absolute your fundamental nature is same. It is in the teachings. Buddhas with all their qualities cannot make your Buddha nature better. Sensient beings like ourselves, with all the power of confusion, making a mess of things, cannot make it worse, mm-hmm. because it's always perfect. In fact, Buddha, when he became enlightened at Bodh Gaya, he made one of the most famous declarations, which, in a sense, is the basis of all the teachings. In which he said, "Substituter." Hussar Ndumashi. To me, sap means profound. He means peace. Tudar is free of complexity. Hussar is this luminosity of clear light. Ndumashi is uncreated. That really speaks of the, the state of enlightenment of the Buddha. Profound peace, free of complexity, natural simplicity. This clear light, luminosity, uncompounded. Nectar like Dharma. I have obtained, but to whosoever I share, no one, unfortunately, is going to understand. (laughs) Because he realized that even though we all had the nature like the Buddha, but yet our ordinary mind comes in the way of realizing the nature of mind. And here an example that the masters use is the example of the ways. You know ways? Vase, ways, and empty ways. The space in the empty ways, or the sky in the empty ways, is the same as the sky outside. But yet the walls of the ways limit limited. It is that when you become enlightened, you actually break the vase, or the walls of the vase, or the vase, And then the sky inside becomes one with the entire sky. In fact, they have never ever been separated. In fact, the masters say that when you become enlightened, it's not that you become enlightened, but rather you cease to become deluded. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, you see, this fundamental nature, and, and, and like really, that's why the wonderful thing about the wonderful meditation is that it actually brings us to a little bit of a glimpse of our nature of mind. When we have a tiny little glimpse of the nature mind, then we experience this tremendous spaciousness and freedom. You understand? And that's why you feel so good. Why do you feel so good? Because it comes from deep down, from your real nature, and you feel this is it. Is that clear? <laughs> and so... What we need to do is remember that, remember that. Remember your nature, particularly when you are confused. Remember that. Often trouble is we have a wonderful time in meditation, but then when we come out of it, we have confusion and we do not remember what meditation brought you. We have no memory of really. Do you know do you know what I'm saying? So the main point of practicing, practicing again is that so that you're able to bring that state of the nature mind more into your everyday experience. If you're able to bring the view, the insight of the view of the nature mind into your everyday experience more and more then means you have good realization. It means nothing if you have good experiences because experiences are just you know, like mists. They come and go they are good in themselves they are how do you say realization materials but they are not realization in themselves but rather that when you are able to in a sense bring this view into your everyday life and it's able to bring some change in you then it's a sign that integration has happened is this clear today my english is gone um i think it's a bit the heat and my jet lag but um, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Mm. What am I saying?
0: <laughs> 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 what am I saying? Safe,
2: safe, safe. <laughs> huh? It's
1: only one sky. It's only one sky. In a sense, you see, even though sometimes the mind is obscured, but behind, don't give up. There's a sky behind you. Mm-hmm. Really? That's why it's very interesting if I were to really share my own little experience more and more difficulties and obstacles come it brings me more to the truth of the nature of my mind. That's why the more difficulties come it becomes like the broom that sweeps away all your negative karma and transforms them. So that's why suffering is no longer a problem. Suffering is in fact finishing your old karma. When suffering comes, you're quite happy. You say, oh, at least I'm finishing my old karma, all that. (laughs) And if you use the suffering well, then suffering can be a source of development. If you look at the life of some of the great masters, then in a sense when they went through great difficulties and great obstacles, when they're able to transform that through their really view and understanding, then you see, that really the development and the realization came. Because, you see, experiences, unfortunately, sometimes we expect good experiences as blessings, but actually the negative ones are. The good ones are trap. (laughs) Especially for
2: Californians.
1: (laughs) It's the difficulties are the blessings. In disguise, very much. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. So that's why, you see, by practicing more and more, really, slowly, slowly, we begin to discover the nature of mind. But then also, one realizes, as my master, the Jumambachi, often used to say, at the moment, our nature of mind is like a little baby thrown in the battlefield of many rising thoughts. Our, Our nature of mind is very weak, do you understand? Know so we need to really babysit the nature of mind. And really, we cannot just you know, throw the baby into the street and now integrate.
2: <laughs>
1: we have to slowly bring it up in, the, in the, kind of the right environment of meditation, through proper practice, in integrating in everyday life. Thereby, gradually, our nature is strengthened, our rikpa is strengthened, our nature of mind is strengthened, and it grows into, into more and more strength. That's how it is. is that clear? That's why you have to practice, 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 practice. There's no other way. But then as you practice practice, as my master Jim used to say, "After a while it comes that even though a meditator may leave the meditation, then the meditation will not leave the meditator gradually and then the sign of it you see like many people sometimes ask what are the sign of realization is non grasping what is it is very difficult for us to realize what shunyata really is but a little bit of a sign if I were to give you a little advice is that when you experience an open of state of mind where there is no grasping where there is less grasping or rather the grasping is gone out of order it no longer works it's a very you know then that is more, how do you say, you're more in the spaciousness of the nature of mind. And then you rest in that spaciousness to come to know that aspect of your true being. Is this clear? To come to know that more, to abide by the recognition of your nature of your mind, to remain to strengthen, because this is our, your real nature, but we, we've lost it. But we've lost it. So we come to know that more and more, strengthen that more and more. And that is the essence of the practice. And so I'm very happy to be here today, and uh, I I live primarily in Europe, but I come sometimes to California, and also um, I've been very much touched by the tremendous response for the book. Mm -hmm. Really, it's been very, how do you say, overwhelming, but I never take that kind of a success personally. Really. In fact, I prayed that may I not become successful. I prayed. You know? Because the message must continue. As Buddha said, rely not on the personality of the teacher, but on his message. Rely not on the word, but the meaning. But in, even in the meaning, the definitive meaning, and not cultural conditioned meaning. And finally, rely not on your judgmental mind, but on your wisdom mind. And so you see, each time when people really, the wonderful thing is that the book has helped so many people to transform their lives. Each time people come and really thank me, and really when, when it has helped somebody, then I really feel very really gratified or humbled. And immediately I feel that, well, the, the teachings and the kind of the kindness that the, my masters have shown is perhaps I'm able to repay it a little bit. To them and offer it back to my masters and pray that may their enlightened vision to benefit all beings may be fulfilled. May they be a small instrument in their work. And then also I further pray that may all beings, more and more beings benefit by the Dharma. Because what does Dharma do? It actually put a stop to suffering. So what we need to do? We need to remove the suffering. Because where does suffering come from? Ignorance. Ignorance. Once the ignorance is removed, then you see that, as my Master says, having purified the great delusion, the heart's darkness, the radiant light of the unobscure sun, that continually rises. This good fortune, the kindness, of Lama, our only father, mother, Lama of the repayable kindness, I only remember you. Lama of the repayable kindness, I only remember you. Lama of the repayable kindness, I only remember you. So I shall end with a little chant, a mantra. Since I'm supposed to represent Tibetan tradition,
2: <laughs>
1: our peculiarity is the mantra.
0: This is the mantra, Padmasambhava. Om... <sighs> This <shrielly> <shrie> is <shrie> Om my Guru do you know this? Do it together. Um, ah, um, bha nza hankur pa mha sudu. Um, ام خون بنز and uh,
1: please repeat after me by the power, by the power and, the and the truth of this teaching, of this teaching and, practice. and practice may all beings, may all beings be, happy be happy and have the causes of happiness.
2: And have the causes of happiness.
1: May all be free from sorrow
2: and the causes of
1: sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is sorrowless. May all live in equanimity without too much attachment and too much aversion and live believing. In the, equality In the equality of all that lives. lives. Traditionally it's without attachment aversion, but that's rather difficult. <laughs> so without too much attachment, then slowly we may become free of attachment. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.